0: Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. Hello, Welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name's Jabeela Risby and I'm joined for today's interview about determination by my wonderful co-host Astrid Edwards. We are speaking to someone who I think is one of Australia's best published authors and that is Maxine Beneba-Clark. Maxine is one of Australia's best known and loved authors there is nothing this woman cannot do short fiction non-fiction and poetry she's been published in so many different forms and she has won so many different awards Astrid and I have been trying to get her on the podcast for some time and finally we've done it Clark, Welcome to Anonymous Was A Woman. We are thoroughly delighted to have you here and we've been chasing to have you here for a while because we are <laughs> mega fans.
1: Yes, I'm very slippery sometimes, but thanks for having me on and I'm glad to be here.
0: The pleasure is all ours. Let's start by talking about getting a book published in the first place because even separate from the content of your work, we're talking about determination today, Getting a book published in the first place requires a hell of a lot of determination. Can you tell us how you came to be a published author in the beginning?
1: It's interesting. I started out in spoken word. I studied creative writing at university and then I went into the spoken word world, which was kind of emerging in Sydney at that time around the mid, like around 2005-ish. And Moved to Melbourne, the spoken word scene was really taken off there. And I was really doing spoken word partly because I didn't know, even though I'd done a creative writing degree, I didn't know how to get published, where to contact people. The few times I tried, it kind of seemed like there were these gatekeepers and the spoken word world was, there were no gatekeepers. You got two minutes on stage guaranteed if you turned up. And then I entered a competition called Poetry Idol, (laughs) <laughs> Which was it was a thing that happened through libraries across Victoria it was um, founded by a Melbourne poet named Michael Crane, and the prize was a book deal with a small publisher named Picaro Press. You entered your heat at your local library and then you had kind of regional heats and then you had the final state heat at the state library of victoria and so I got to the the finals heat, actually, I think it was at the Malt house, the finals and for some reason, I got really nervous and I read a poem, performed a poem I'd performed during the heat, so I was disqualified. Oh, no! And I was like, oh, no, this is my one chance to get a poetry publishing deal. Anyway, the next day, I rang up the guy who was publishing the winner and I said, look, I was in this competition and the winner got a publishing deal with your publishing company and I got disqualified. but. It was a really big mistake because I should have won. So can you still publish my book? Yes, yes. And he just paused like he was thinking this person is completely unhinged. What is going on? And then he said, do you have any poems there? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I've got to catch a bus in 10 minutes. So read me a couple poems. Oh, wow. Talk about pressure. I know. <laughs> so I was like, this is the moment. So I went and read him a couple poems and had a bit of a brief chat to him. And he was like, yeah, okay, I'll put a book out for you. Little did I know, this seems like the dream, kind of, you know, how to get a publishing deal. Picaro Press was, they only published poetry by Australian poets. And a lot of what they did was this little series called Wagtail Poets, which is just a chapbook of about 30 to 40 pages. So really just a sampler. And he was one man that I didn't know at the time who had a printing press in his shed out in Warners Bay in kind of regional-ish New South Wales. And that was what Picaro Press was. And at the time I had no idea
2: I just don't think that matters, Maxine. The idea that you had the grit and the confidence and just, I don't know, the choice part to call up and be like, that was a huge mistake. I clearly should have won and you need to publish me. That's the best thing I've heard in months, Maxine. I love that. I didn't know that story about you. <laughs> I want to ask for all writers, for all poets and performers and creatives, you are essentially sharing a part of yourself often a very personal part of yourself with the world. And that has to be scary and it puts you out there, right? It makes you vulnerable. And I'm wondering where on earth does that impetus come from? What is that urge to share your creativity with others?
1: I think for me, because my work is mostly political, you know, it responds to things in the world that I'm unhappy with or things I've seen that I wanna talk about. It's always about starting a conversation which i think is why spoken word also appealed to me because it was standing up in a room full of people and talking about something and getting your two minutes to say whatever you wanted and then often afterwards people would come up to you at the bar and say i disagreed with you or i really love that or you know would start a conversation and so i guess because i come from that angle i think of it more as starting a conversation with people and how that conversation goes is often out of my hands you know it could get shut down immediately it could be Something that that person reads and then carries with them throughout their life. But I see it very much as creating a dialogue as opposed to, I guess, art in inverted commas, even though that's what it is.
2: I just had this very strange vision of you standing up on one of the speaker's boxes on a corner of old London or old Athens (laughs) and just going full demagogue and starting a conversation with the world and just changing it for the better. So I don't know where they came from, but Maxine, I wish you were my leader.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. One, one year at the Emerging Writers Festival, when it was under the direction of David Riding, they had this event very similar to that in the atrium at Federation Square. It was called Speaker's Corner. And you had, I think, eight soapboxes and 40 poets. And you each had to perform once on each of the eight soapboxes throughout the day. So it was the entire day. And it was amazing. But people kept complaining about my work. <laughs> Because back then, you know, I was in my mid, mid, maybe I might have been twenty six or twenty seven, and I, I, my work was had had as much political content as it does now, but was not nearly as nuanced. <laughs> so people were hearing things that they would probably never hear as they went about their Saturdays or Sunday, whatever day on the weekend it was, just kind of getting their ice creams at Federation Square. And I remember saying to David, someone came up to me and said, do you realise that people are complaining to Federation Square about your set? And I said to David, do you want me to change? You know, I do have other poems. And he said, no, this is the whole point. People have to hear something that they wouldn't normally hear. And if they're complaining, then you're eliciting a response. So I just went about my day on these soapboxes with disgruntled people walking past. I love that.
0: I really wish I'd been there. (laughs) I feel like I've massively missed out. Maxine, I want to ask about a hashtag you created some time ago now called Writing While Female and you were encouraging people to share the professional and personal obstacles that women writers face to just being allowed to write in the first place. Can you tell me a little bit about what your writing process is like, how you carve out time to actually be able to do it and the space and the headspace to be able to do it as well?
1: Yeah, I think I started that hashtag just while, you know, obviously thinking about the obstacles that I faced as a female writer that a lot of male writers don't necessarily face. And I think that was partly to do with being a mother and a writer. You know, after I had the first couple of books of poetry published by Picard Press and was trying to write the next fiction book and trying to find a publisher for it, I had two young kids and I was a single parent, so I had a five-year-old and a one-year-old and you know it's it's almost impossible and so just thinking about the differences and the differences in you know when people say to you oh no 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 it's fine like we you know we kind of want to encourage women with children just bring your kids and you're kind of going this is a one-year-old and it's a two-hour spoken word event
0: (laughs) these two don't go together
1: yeah absolutely And so, yeah, just thinking about the various times in my life when that has intersected, you know, gender has influenced my work. And I think, you know, I think it's kind of with my work, there's often a... People either see me as a female writer or see me as a black writer and not necessarily both. So they might be inviting me because they want diversity on the panel, you know, and it's kind of an an amazing opportunity for me to be on, but I go, well, I can't come because... It's on a 4.30 when I'm supposed to be doing the school after the school pickup or something like that. So I guess that's what the hashtag partly was just wanting to know what other people's experiences were and hear about them.
0: I think there's something about those shared experiences of the battle to have time. And, you know, our podcast is called after Virginia Woolf talking about needing a room of one's own. I think that battle for time is constant and more so for women more so for mothers and, again, more so for single mothers of young children because carving out that time becomes so incredibly difficult in amongst all of the other responsibilities.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: I'd like to ask you, Maxine, about time and creativity In this year, you, like Jam and I, live in Melbourne and we are apparently forever in stage four lockdown and that comes with homeschooling and all sorts of working from home arrangements and just a different approach to life and a different approach to creativity and work. Have you been working or creative at this time? And if so... Can you please tell me how you do it?
1: (laughs) I think, yeah, I think lockdown and isolation has changed. I have been creating, but it's changed what I've made this year. I've had a very different year to what I ordinarily would have made. I think the idea for this year for me, I've got kind of a couple of different projects bigger projects, like a theatre project and a screen project. But it's hard to get that time, you know, when you need at least four hours to actually sit down, get your head around something and do an actual block of writing. So what I ended up doing was just setting that aside during the first lockdown that we had and going, you know what, I'm going to make a kid's book because I had a text that I was wanting to make a kid's book out of anyway. And I thought I can... Do the illustrations while I'm talking to the kids, while they're homeschooling at the same table. It's not something that I need to be completely focused on. And even that, there were a couple times where one of the illustrations, my daughter was on her recess break for homeschool and came and looked at it. And I, I was illustrating watercolor pencils, and she dropped a drop of juice on this illustration that I've been working on for about oh. three hours. Oh. And because it's watercolour pencil, when you drop it, you know, the pen, they kind of slowly. And we both just stood there looking at this drop slowly get bigger. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's an entire day's work. And then I found a way to cover it up <laughs> by drawing something over the top. And now when she looks at this illustration, she's, just, oh, there's the bit where you covered up my juice. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I feel like there is very much a lesson in there for me, Maxine. I am trying desperately to work on a bunch of projects and I'm not very good at switching the one that I'm supposed to be working on. I kind of sit there and end up doing nothing as opposed to doing what you've just explained, which is going and actually figuring out how to do something else that works with my surroundings and the situation I find myself in. So
1: I'm going to go copy you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's harder when you have hard deadlines, but. (laughs)
0: Also Maxine, you'd be really good in the kids craft department. And that's been my most hated element of ISO, which betrays a level of privilege about my isolation anyway, that we're in jobs and we're well, but I effing hate craft anyway I'm going to set aside my craft fury, Maxine you write across in a, in a bunch of different ways we've read your poetry we've read fiction we've read non-fiction we've read you in the Saturday paper and it's pretty rare to have poetry in a newspaper I'm about to say these days but I'm pretty sure it's rare to have poetry in a newspaper ever and I was very sad when that section came to an end I wanted to ask for you what's the hardest what takes the most discipline for you to work on?
1: The hardest thing I've ever written, which is still not finished yet, is a stage adaptation that I'm working on of my memoir. I thought it was because it was an adaptation, because it's so difficult to decide, It's particularly when it's memoir, what goes in, what stays out. You know that people have read the book and loved it, and they're going to come and see the play and go, but this bit wasn't in it, and that bit, you know, so I had a lot of kind of, I guess, angst about that but I've since started kind of doing treatments for a different adaptation for another one of my books, a screen adaptation. And I love, like, I think my work is kind of naturally cinematic. I think it's the stage form that you only have dialogue. And I think what I learned was that so much of my writing is actually scene setting, description, atmosphere, all of the things that when you're writing a play, the director brings and the actor brings, and, and all you give them are the, is the dialogue. And so that's been a really interesting learning curve. I found it so difficult. Hats off to playwrights.
2: <laughs> so, Maxine,
1: when you do find something
2: difficult, how do you jolt yourself out of it? Do you give yourself a talking to? Do you give
1: yourself a to do list? How do you get going and start again? I think looking at other works. So going, you know, who's a playwright that I admire, going and reading their works, sometimes just time out, just going, this isn't working. I'm going to leave it for a few days. or I'm going to leave it for a few weeks. Or in my case, I'm going to leave it for six months. (laughs) (laughs) If you can do that, you know, there was no hard deadline for this. So I was lucky. And I think also breaking the conventions that I have in my head, that a play has to be this way or that way you know i started out trying to write the traditional almost like a david williamson version of the hate race and then i kind of went why am i doing this i'm a poet this is an act of storytelling why can't half of it be in poetry so just often i think when i come up against the wall it's because of my own what's been drummed into me about that particular art form
0: can i ask about where your determination is going to take you next because we're in a you know we're in a really unusual period I'm going to do it. I'm going to say the word. We are in unprecedented times. <laughs> oh, I'm so over unprecedented times. But it is a strange moment in history. And I feel like that gives creatives so many new opportunities and ideas. And yet you're kind of working at a very constrained environment and part of me wonders if the next four years is just going to be 10,000 versions of books about coronavirus. For you, where do you land in kind of bringing the current moment into your work or leaving it to the side?
1: It's a really interesting time for artists. You know, I feel like there's three aspects of determination. There's grit, you know, as in kind of having focus and keeping going. And then there's fate, you know, as in the ultimate determination kind of thing. And then there's calculation, you know, to actually assess something and decide, you know, determine where you're going to go. And I think for me, I'm in that kind of calculation stage at the moment, like the book that I worked on during the first lockdown um, is a kid's book about the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think for me, I'd always wanted to write a kid's book about that. And I thought there is no way someone is going to publish an overt Black Lives Matter, <laughs> you know, that basically is a mantra to small children about Black Lives Matter. But I went, you know what, this is the time. This is if, I were, if I was going to try and get that through a publisher's door, now is the time.
0: Yeah. I will buy 100 copies.
1: <laughs> and so I think that's part of the writer's journey. You know, I think we, it's important to have focus and not to give up. But that's not all it requires, you know, and I think there are a lot of writers who don't give up and still never get published. So I think you have to bear in mind, unfortunately, you know, if you do want to get published, well, what what is the time for what particular book? What is the marker for what particular book? Well, I guess for me, because I'm also starting political conversations, is there a need for it now? And is this the best time to actually talk to people about this particular thing?
2: You just use the word calculation, Maxine, and that has made lots of little light bulbs go off in my head because while, as you said, you know, you need focus to get something done, it's often not enough. If it's not the right moment or if you haven't quite got the idea perfect in your head, it won't go anywhere and you need to be, you need the calculation to, to make it fly, to make it sing in the world. And that's a whole new... Um, Every time I speak to you, Maxine, you make me think of something I haven't thought of before.
1: (laughs) Thanks. And I think I do. I would pitch books to my publisher about four times a month. I'll ring him up and I'll go, I have this amazing idea and it's going to be like this. And this is how it's going to be structured. And he's like, That's amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. Bring it to me when you're 50% done. (laughs) Because he knows that I'll talk to him three days later and he'll go, Oh, what about that idea? And I'll go, What?
0: I don't even know what you're talking about. I've, I've recently undertaken the strategy of writing books for different publishers within the same publishing house and then they don't know that you're doing so many at once and not getting them done until they're published. Try that. Then they get angry. So, yeah.
2: I do have one actual question for you, Maxine, that I, I guess I fumbled before. You said much of your writing is about your desire to start conversations. What is a conversation that you haven't started for us yet?
1: Ah, I mean, I think at the moment I'm tending towards, even though I have all of these other adult projects on the boil, I'm tending towards conversations with kids. I think the world that they're now growing up in, particularly post-pandemic, given racial justice issues, given environmental issues, there are so many issues that I'd love to talk about kids with at an early age, you know, whether it comes to things like gender identity and sexuality or whether it's about the environment or whether it's about yeah I feel like there's a whole series of conversations that can be had at an earlier age or that I would have loved someone to have with me or my kids when they were at an earlier age. I think I'd love to talk about the post-pandemic climate whether it's about poverty and economics and the rental market and things like that. I think that this time has just shone a light on a whole heap of injustices that have been there since day dot, but that now it just kind of, you know, completely have been cracked open. And I think, yeah, it's the right time to have a lot of those conversations.
0: Maxine thank you for your time today we greatly appreciate it and knowing Astrid and I we will continue to bother you for most of your life
1: because we (laughs) we are officially
0: uh number one fans in the fan club so thanks for being here (laughs)
1: thank you
0: That was Maxine Benaber- clark in conversation with me, Jamila Rizvi, and my co-host Astrid Edwards. We will be back in your feeds in just a couple of days with next week's topic, which is momentum. If you want to make sure that you do not miss out on our glorious momentum, then you should subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review and make sure they're good ones.